Hello, and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for Wednesday, March 10th, 2021. And happy Mario Day to all of you video game fans out there. My name is Tom Hollingsworth, and I am the star of this show. And joining me is my Luigi, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, welcome to the program. How are you today? Hey, it's a me. All right. Uh, with that in mind, we've got a great lineup of stories. There's been a lot happening in the tech industry, and we're going to jump right in with some of the top stories that we saw this week. And I'm going to kick it off with a little bit of storage news, Stephen. Um, if you remember the RAM disk, you're probably old enough to get your AARP card in the mail. But Atto is hoping that you still have a little bit of money left over to buy their new RAM disk storage technology. The silicon disk storage appliance is designed to provide storage not addressable memory, and it is going to do that for servers over RDMA, over a 100 gigabit ethernet uh, port, or as direct attached storage. Now, in case you were wondering what happens when the power goes out, Addo has you covered because they're gonna be writing the data to an internal NAND storage cache to keep it persistent just in case the juice goes away. Steven, is the RAM disk going to compete in the world that we have today where we have super fast NAND flash and uh, persistent memory that can run in uh, DIMMs? You know, Tom, I really want to give them an attaboy for this technology that they've created. I have to quote my college roommate who, when he installed System 6 on his Macintosh, came running in and said, virtual memory, now we can have a really big RAM disk. Um, so here's the thing. Building a storage array that uses DRAM and using it as storage is, well, it works. Um, so there's that. The problem is um, this was literally Violin Memory's business model and technology 15 years ago. And they ended up pivoting to Flash and then eventually getting bought because, well, it turns out that RAM is expensive. And even though it's fast, um, eh. so I got to give this story a great big bottle of, eh. but like I said, I do have to give them an attaboy for the concept of creating a, uh, giant DRAM based storage system on that note. Well, actually not at all on that note, Tom. Okta is moving to get better with APIs. They announced last week that they're buying another large identity access management provider called Auth0 for $6.5 billion. This deal brings a developer-focused platform and uh, the rain to the reigning leader in IAM solutions. The amount paid in the all-stock transaction was somewhat surprising, but given the rumors that Salesforce was looking to pick up the company uh, that needed to close the deal and quickly drove up the price. Auth0 will bring new customers and integrations to Okta and make customers happy. Tom, was this deal as big as it seems? Well, considering that when the deal was announced, it was a bunch of my security friends on Twitter just typing holy expletive in a link to it. I think that the community seems to think it was a pretty big deal. And when you dig into it, thanks to some of the financial analysis, um, it looks like that What's really trying to go on here is that Okta wants to try to, to pull into that developer 
um, methodology of build the IAM in at the beginning, and then you can just use API access through whatever software that you want to do. Now, the I love the TechCrunch quote uh, in an article that I was doing research on. IAM is the least sexy thing you're going to see, but it is probably the most necessary. And as we look at the spate of hacking and the rapidity with which our passwords are exposed to the internet, you have to have a robust, solid IAM solution. And quite honestly, Okta was kind of at the top of the list. So for them to kind of reeve off a little bit of, of their valuation, uh, based on what I've seen, it's about a fifth of their valuation that they're investing into Auth0. Um, I think that this is going to give them a customer base to grow on, and it's really going to help them out in the long run. Uh, and quite honestly, if it just means that Mark Benioff doesn't get his hands on yet another company, I'll take that one as a little win. All right, Stephen, um, I know we like talking about chips on this uh, program, and uh, for once, we're not going to be talking about Intel because um, Cliff over at Serve the Home has written about a release date that's been announced for the new AMD Epic processors. Um, on March 15th, AMD will be releasing the codenamed Milan, which is their third generation processor. It's going to have 64 cores. It's positioned in direct opposition to Intel's new Ice Lake Xeon offerings. Now, these run on a seven nanometer process. They're going to have some significant performance gains because of all those hungry, hungry cores. And they're going to be running up to 4.1 gigahertz in the power boosted mode. So hopefully you can uh, cook some things on top of them. Um, Steven, with uh, with a definite advantage in the core count and the fact that this is going to be running on a smaller, tighter process, is AMD going to continue to steal market share away from Intel when it comes to server cores? You think? Um, yeah, I, I, th I think so. Um, and I guess that's really the whole story here. The funny, I mean, honestly, the one, I, I got to admit to the audience here, the one reason that I wanted to include this link to serve the home is because of the cookies. Um, so basically they can't say anything because let me tell you, um, Patrick and the crew over at Serve the Home, these are decent journalists and they respect embargoes. And the fact that they got a Pepperidge Farm cookie wrapper and included the uh, a whole bunch of references to an AMD server CPU um, based on um, illustrations on a package of cookies, it, 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 I'm speechless um, because we're all speechless because there's nothing any of us can say about Milan X that would violate, uh, that wouldn't violate an NDA. Um, happily, I don't have an NDA, um, so I can say whatever the heck I want. And so what I wanna say is uh, this really ought to be a pretty scary prospect for Intel. So Intel's um, next generation Xeon platform has not yet been released. Um, we, many in the industry thought that it was gonna be released earlier than this. Um, it still hasn't been released. And it is not likely to be released before um, perhaps March 15th when people expect uh, AMD to release uh, their third generation um, Zen based uh, server CPU platform. And um, this thing ought to rock. Um, I've got a um, Zen uh, CPU. I've used the Epic uh, first generation CPUs. I've also got a Zen 3 processor that I've been playing with. And um, it is, it's faster on a, you know, instructions per clock basis. Um, it's more scalable. It's just all around a better processor than the better processor that was already a better processor 
unfortunately, than the ones that Intel are offering in the market. And um, so this ought to be a pretty killer announcement. Uh, that being said, um, it's actually not all that exciting because it's just more of what you already got. I mean, this is the next generation server processor, but we don't expect it to you know, really blow anybody away. It's gonna do more with less power in less space. Um, and it's gonna cement the fact that AMD is gonna be a couple of generations ahead of Intel in not only the desktop, but also the server CPU market. And uh, that's not a comfy place for Intel to be. Um, I'm surprised that uh, we, you know, that the, the next generation Xeon has not been launched yet. Uh, I suspect that uh, Intel is gonna probably respond to this in one way or another. Um, I think that that, uh, you know, seems likely because as uh, the man said, this will not stand. Um, so there's that. Yeah, there's no news here. No news at all. Maybe next week we'll talk about what the release actually was. So Tom, um, in Xanadu did a startup talk about a very enlightening development in quantum computing. They've announced a practical leap forward in optical quantum computing using new technologies to enhance the ability of photons to be used as qubit particles in quantum computing operations. Combined with interferometer technology, this eight qubit computer is capable of producing great results for operations. The best part, it's programmable. Using a Python compatible API, programmers can extend the hardware and solve problems without having to rebuild the entire computer every time. Um, Tom, what does this um, buzzword bingo mean for the future of quantum computing? So I've, ever since I did my conversations episode, I've been fascinated by this idea of quantum computers. And the fact that we've, we've used some fairly heavy particles as of late, because it turns out that when you build a quantum computer to, to look something up, you kind of have to build it like a, a steady state machine. It can only do that one thing. So imagine if a calculator could only add. Well, photons are really easy to manipulate and, and kind of build around it. But the problem is, you can either build it to do one thing really well, or you can build it to be programmable, but you can't build it to do both. And so that's been a huge challenge. The other issue is, is that you need more than one particle in order to be able to assure that your, your computations are accurate, right? Well, how do you determine how many photons have hit a collector? Because they're light. So at the end of the, the, the tunnel, literally, um, you, you can't really differentiate between the amount of photons that are hitting. So what Xanadu has done is they've essentially, essentially taken all the modern technology that we've come up with in like the last five or six years, and they've built a much more sensitive um, sensor at the end of this tunnel. But more importantly, what they're essentially doing is they built the inferometers around the outside of the tunnel. And as you fire these photons down the tunnel, the inferometers pick up the state of those photons as they exit the tunnel. And through the magic of quantum computing, and I kid you not, this really is magic, all of the inferometers steer the photon to the right decision to solve the problem. Harry Potter has nothing on this. Now, the good news is, is that where the real magic is in this, the because you're using photons, I know we mentioned that it's an eight bit eight qubit quantum computer, which is relatively small, all things being equal. There's no reason why this can't scale higher. And if you refer back to my conversations episode on quantum computing and uh, qu and quantum proof encryption, you know that 48 qubits is like the magic number for a computer to be able to hit to crack 
um, RSA encryption through Shor's algorithm. So we have essentially something that can scale pretty high, pretty fast. Um, and for all of you out there, uh, it, it basically runs on Python. By the way, props to the API that, that translates Python into this, uh, Strawberry Fields. Um, I'm sure there are a lot of Beatles fans uh, out in Xanadu, so congratulations on, on that. But um, I'm gonna be keeping an eye on this because you know I, for one, welcome our new quantum computer overlords. And here, right, I thought 48 cubits was the width of Noah's Ark, but it turns out it was 50. <laughs> well, you know, uh, sometimes you uh, you have to make sure you're measuring in the right cubits. Uh, shine some light on that, if you will. Um, Stephen, uh, swinging back into some more uh, tech news, but maybe not necessarily tech-focused news, uh, the current government administration has announced that they've got a new pick for the National Economic Council, but it's a little bit worrisome to tech companies. The reason why is because it would be Mr. Tim Wu. And if that name doesn't sound familiar to you, he's a longtime critic of tech companies and tech monopolies, but you probably know his work if you've ever said the word net neutrality. He is the one who first coined the term net neutrality, and he's railed against things like walled garden app stores, closed tech ecosystems, all the things that you've grown up with that you probably hate. Um, the move is seen by many in government circles as a counter to the growing power of tech companies over the last few years, which you probably remember from all of these large mergers that have been happening that basically just got a rubber stamp from the government and the ability of mega corporations like social media platforms to essentially monopolize our lives through the use of algorithms and things like that. Um, now, Stephen, um, we, we try to kind of keep a tech view on the way that these things go. Is the White House signaling to Silicon Valley that they're about to put some pretty heavy brakes on the way that tech companies are growing and merging? Yep. <laughs> Let me tell you, Tim Wu is a hoopy fruit who really knows where his towel is. This guy is awesome. He not only is uh, one of the brains behind net neutrality, he's also one of the people that helped break open the wireless, uh, the mobile phone monopoly with a uh, really weirdly named paper about a wireless Carter phone. And if you don't know what that is, it's a reference to a time when basically AT&T didn't let anybody connect to their wired networks. And so a company came up with a suction cup device that literally like on the telephone so that you could connect like non-AT&T telephones to the telephone. And this basically busted open the communications monopoly and delivered the modern world as we know it. There would be no modems if it hadn't been for Carter phone. Well, Tim Wu did not invent the Carter phone, but what he did was he applied that same principle to wireless telecommunications and proposed essentially that uh, wireless companies have to let people connect you know, with their own handsets, bring your own handsets. So if you've ever bought a device and then connected it to whatever network you wanna connect it to, you can thank Mr. Tim Wu, at least here in America, because in other countries, people were just doing that because it just plain makes sense. So if you like people that come up with technology decisions that just plain make sense and support the needs of the common ordinary people who just wanna get stuff done, then you'd probably like Tim Wu. And if you like monopolies that keep people from attaching stuff to your network and make sure that you're in control of everything your customers do, then you're probably pretty opposed to Tim Wu. And for that reason, I'm pretty in favor of Tim Wu. Also, the dude has been on the Colbert Report, and how cool is that? So I I'm pretty excited uh, to have uh, Tim Wu. Um, I think this was a great, uh, great addition, and it uh, makes me feel a little bit better about Washington to see that uh, somebody like that could be in charge. 
So now uh, let's take a little bit of a closer look at a couple of stories. Um, Tom and I are each going to talk about a couple of things that we've seen going on in the world right now and uh, dive in a little deeper in a more of a discussion format. So Tom, um, no doubt you've heard about those newly released exchange exploits. I know that folks like me have because a lot of my friends who have really nothing to do with exchange for years and years have been called back into service in the last week to try to patch what's been going on. And what's been going on has been pretty, pretty bad. There's been at least 30,000 organizations hacked through Microsoft Exchange vulnerabilities. The aggressors in this case were a unknown crew being called Hafnium with ties to China. This crew appears to be taking advantage of uh, new holes to drop web shells across their path, guaranteeing that they can get back in from anywhere they want. Uh, Microsoft is continuing to push the importance of patching the exploit and updating uh, detection tools to prevent uh, installation of these web shell uh, remote access methods. Uh, but Tom, um, 30,000 organizations, that's a lot of organizations. That's a lot of systems and a lot of things that need to be patched. And I'm going to bet that many of them are not going to be successfully patched in order to fight off these hackers. Um, how can customers present them, so, pre uh, protect themselves from this? Well, it's funny that Microsoft released this patch on March the 2nd, and the report that I linked from Krebs uh, was actually um, this week. So given a week, people still didn't manage to get a patch rolled out. And I know that sometimes we get this feeling of it's the boy crying wolf and, you know, the sky is falling, chicken little, except when you find out that someone dropped a web shell on your exchange server and is currently looting your exchange inbox and a whole bunch of other fun stuff. Um, you, there's a reason why we kind of look at patches as like, oh man, I really don't want to have to take the exchange server down because, you know, what happens if the CEO yells at me? I can promise you the CEO yelling at you for taking your exchange server down for 35 minutes to patch it is not going to be quite as bad as the yelling you're going to get when your CEO gets a phone call from Brian Krebs saying, I'd like you to comment on this story because your emails just got splashed all over the internet. Um, the fact that this is also an unknown hacking crew as of you know, now is a little worrisome because, I mean, thinking all the way back to the SolarWinds hack, as soon as someone said that they'd been hacked, we kind of had a list of people in our heads of who this could be. I mean, there's some perennial favorites. It's, it's almost like, you know, picking your favorite sports team. But these guys came out of nowhere, are actively exploiting a significant number of servers out there, and we don't know what they're going to do with it. Because obviously, if they're stealing data, there's, there's going to probably be some kind of a, a, a thing they're going to do with it. And they're dropping web shells because they want to get back in there. But here's the thing. If it was the Russians or the North Koreans, I know what they're going to do with it. They're going to sell it. They're going to try to get money for it. And they're going to just be you know, a little bit more um, trollish. The Chinese, they don't typically sell things. They're doing this because they want the info. And so that kind of brings up a much bigger argument as to what's going to happen because you don't go hack 30,000 companies because you're looking for someone's bank account number. You hack 30,000 companies because you're looking for information that you can use to do all kinds of other things. And given the track record of some of the people inside the um, great firewall of taking things and building them themselves and not attributing proper, I don't know, intellectual property, I'm not saying that that's what they're doing. But I'm saying it's more likely than that that's what they're doing than just going to ransom your data on a forum somewhere. So for the love of all that's holy, if you're an exchange admin and you're listening to this story, just pause it and go patch your exchange server. We'll be here when you get back because that's more important than anything right now. Yeah, this is, um, you know, 
You thought that SolarWinds hack was bad? Um, remotely hacking an Exchange server and opening up an access to servers? Uh, did, did, this is really bad. This is really, really, really bad. And uh, frankly, it shows what's wrong with enterprise security in a, in a nutshell. And that is that essentially it's just a mess of um, old, outdated, um, you know, closed source uh, applications that uh, basically um, are touching the internet and um, the internet's touching them back and not in a good way. And so frankly, I'm really not at all surprised that something like this could happen. Um, I'm really not even surprised at the scope of this attack. I'm just sad about it. For me, the thing that really drove it home was a another uh, mention in one of the coverage of, of this exchange hack that said that um, over 20% of all systems that were subject to WannaCry um, are still unpatched and that a massive amount of, of systems out there um, are still running, you know, old unpatched versions of, you know, Windows 7 and, you know, that, that, that have like all sorts of known vulnerabilities in them and they're on the, on the internet and, uh, and open to attack. Um, if people can't even keep up with the patches, it kind of makes you wonder if we are doing everything wrong. And, you know, that's kind of got me thinking, and Tom and I are actually this morning, we're talking about this on our clubhouse chat in preparation for the rundown recording, whether we need to, as enterprises, we need to start thinking more in the lines of an iOS model of, you know, pushed out patches and walled gardens and approved applications and so on, if things are going to be touching the internet, because um, maybe that would help. I don't know, maybe it wouldn't. It's just really sad to see something like this happen. It's a big deal. Yeah, I really wish we could get to a point where we could have high confidence that we could patch our systems from security holes without creating bigger holes or creating unintended side effects. And I mean, that was kind of the dream of the cloud is that these things are just going to stay up and I could patch the underlying infrastructure as I need to. But I think there's a lot of backwards thinking that's still in IT that we need to deal with. All right, Stephen, um, I, speaking of going from a security risks to something that could possibly keep us more secure, um, the conundrum that we have in our world right now is that we really do need a lot of really specific data in order to build the best possible models for AI and ML. Uh, but we don't want our own personal data being used against us somehow. If only there was some kind of a way to, I don't know, encrypt this data so that it could be used for research purposes, but not specifically identified to any one person. Now, the term that you're looking for for that particular unicorn technology is called homomorphic encryption. And why are we bringing this up? Because Intel made an announcement that says they're ready to roll out specialized silicon to support homomorphic encryption. Now, the idea of this, specifically fully homomorphic encryption, We've only been able to realize it in the past decade, even though we've been working on this problem for a long time, because it requires an intense amount of compute power to be able to process fully encrypted data and integrate it into models. Uh, now, Intel made this announcement alongside Microsoft and DARPA, who you probably remember from the fame of building that little internet thing. It's a custom silicon that is developed to accelerate the processing of encrypted data into AI and ML models. How much is it accelerating this? Well, right now, the factor that they quote for people to be able to do this analysis is usually in days. They claim they're gonna be able to get it down to minutes. They're looking at factors of like 45 times reduction. 
Um, the announcement did not come with any super specific details along other than the fact that Intel Labs has really been working on this for several years now. But given the fact that they at least felt comfortable enough that they're going to take it out to the press and they're really going to start trotting it out, um, it has some potential for future use, especially for AI and ML researchers who are looking to try to integrate this stuff. Now, Stephen, you've, uh, being our resident AI expert, you've probably heard a lot of briefings as of late on homomorphic encryption. Is this the magic wand that we're really looking for that's going to help give us good AI algorithms, but also keep us all safe? Yeah, and, and this thing, you know, a, a wise man said to me this morning on Clubhouse, Mr. Tom Hollingsworth said to me, there's kind of two people in the world. Uh, there's the kind of people who, when presented with fully homomorphic encryption, say, um, cool, tell me how it works. And the kind of people that say, no, there's no way that works. And actually, I guess there's a third category of people, which is people who say, what? But given those first two groups, um, I was definitely in the uh, there ain't no way group. Um, frankly, the idea that you can perform mathematical operations on encrypted data while it's still encrypted, that's the important thing, is frankly ludicrous. Um, how do you take encrypted value A and encrypted value B and, and do something with that without decrypting it? Um, I just don't get it. Now, last week, we actually recorded an episode of the Utilizing AI podcast with a uh, phenomenally smart person, uh, Artie Rahman, from a company called Titanium Labs. And what Titanium has done is come up with their own uh, encryption system that lets you effectively perform applications and, and, and ML processing on data while it's still encrypted. But this is someone who is, well, probably smarter than both of us combined. And she was really hesitant to call what they were doing fully homomorphic encryption, because frankly, that's just a can of bees. Um, and once you open up that can, you're not going to be happy. So the idea that Intel is coming out uh, with DARPA and saying that we can make this happen in silicon, well, that uh, leaves me a little bit skeptical, um, but, but they're Intel, I mean, and they're DARPA, and, and, and maybe they can, maybe they're even smarter than me too. Um, probably it's the case. Um, so the, the, the thing that's going on here is that DARPA came up with a way, and there's actually a couple of different uh, fully homomorphic encryption um, techniques out there, but the problem is that these techniques actually um, blow up the data, they expand the data tremendously. And the problem is that takes up a lot more storage. It also takes up a lot more processing. And uh, so Intel's uh, basically building an accelerator for something that already exists, but is super inefficient. Now, if this works, that would be super good. If it doesn't work, maybe what we need to do instead is approach it kind of the way that Titanium is approaching it and say, well, maybe we don't you know, kind of capital E encrypt the data. Maybe we figure out a way to encode the data in a way that isn't, that isn't reversible so that people actually can't get at the data. So effectively the data would be protected if not encrypted, and then we can perform operations against it. And that to me sounds like a, a more practical application, but honestly, who am I? This is Intel and DARPA. Maybe they figured it out. Maybe they practiced not. If they did, I think one thing that, um, you know, Ms. Raman and I and, and Tom and the rest of us can agree is that this would be phenomenally wonderful because by allowing data to remain encrypted, 
even when it's being shared and even when processing is being done and when ML models are learning and you know when data is coming back and forth between vendors and so on, by not encrypting it ever, then we're not exposing it ever. And that gives us much greater control of data. And that is a good thing for everything. In fact, probably half the stories we talk about on the rundown would not be stories if only data didn't need to be decrypted before it could be processed. So hopefully this works. I would love it if it worked. We'll see. Here's hoping because, you know, just like any good magical unicorn fairy dust, the, the promise is there, but the execution is probably a little bit off. So, I mean, if anybody can do it, Intel can, and when you look at all their SGX technologies that they've been working on, they're probably closer than most, but being closer than most when it's still 100 miles away is still quite a distance. All right, uh, wanted to close out the uh, episode with a little bit of a discussion about working from home. Now, that's kind of our new normal, um, especially here at Gestalt IT, because we've, we kind of have been working from home for a while, even before the pandemic started. But um, there's been a lot of studies that have come out. I'm sure you've probably seen and read a ton of them. Um, and, but a lot of those were done early on in the pandemic. And now that we're right at a year since we all kind of went into lockdown, um, Buffer, the social media platform has released uh, a new report that we'll have linked in the show notes that kind of shed some light on some perspectives around this. Now, the study highlights that workers really, really want to continue to work from home even after the current pandemic is over. Like how much? Like 97% want to continue and 3% don't. Um, they really cite the fact that they like the flexibility. Over 50% of the respondents said that they like the flexibility of the schedule. They like the flexibility of deciding where they want to work. So, you know, you can tell that that's kind of a big deal. They don't want to necessarily go into the office from eight to five. However, one thing that was cited in the report is a negative. Almost a quarter of the respondents said that it's kind of hard to disconnect from work. It feels like you're always on because, well, now you kind of live in your office when you think about it. Um, Stephen, what are your insights based on this study? Because you and I have had a lot of discussions about working from home and working from anywhere because, but even back during the pandemic, our office wasn't even our house. Our office was a hotel room or an airplane seat somewhere. Uh, do you see a return to working in offices whenever we finally get to a point where we're fully vaccinated or as close as we're going to get and companies feel comfortable opening back up? Or are we going to start seeing companies say, you know what, you've wanted this for so long and we proved that it works? fine, you can work from wherever you want from here on out. Well, I think that we're going to see a much greater adoption of work from anywhere, at least part of the time for um, white collar workers. And there's a lot of qualifications there. Um, number one, I don't think we're talking about working from home, because I think a lot of us have learned that it's actually fairly challenging to work from home. Um, this could be actually a boon for co-working spaces and uh, you know shared offices and things like that because I think a lot of people are going to start thinking about working from anywhere, even if not from the basement or the garage. Um, that being said as well, uh, we're really only talking about white collar knowledge workers here. Um, I think that it's important to recognize that this study is not a study of factory workers or waitresses in restaurants. Um, I'm sorry, but they're not gonna be able to work from home in, uh, in the foreseeable future, um, despite the fact that they might want to as well. 
But if you're a white collar knowledge worker, if you're somebody who's uh, typing in a keyboard or talking on the phone all day long, there's a good chance that you will be working from home for the rest of your career or from anywhere for the rest of your career, at least part of the time. And I think that that's, to me, really the big takeaway here. Now, there was a bunch of questions um, in this survey, uh, which was done, uh, incidentally, not by Buffer themselves, but by a team uh, called Doist Remotive and We Work Remotely, um, who did this study. In incidentally, too, they've done this study uh, three or four years in a row now. And um, it's actually pretty illuminating to see the change in answers over time. But given that, I would say that there is certainly a very large cohort of people that want to be able to work from anywhere, at least part of the time. And I think that's what we're going to see. I mean, so to cut, cut to the chase, I think increasingly companies are going to be starting to say, you know what, we don't need people in five days a week, eight to five. We don't need people to have your desk, my desk. What we need to do is we need to have um, the office as sort of a gathering place or even a clubhouse where people can come together when they need to, to do the things that they need to do together and that they can work from other locations uh, apart from that. I think that cat is out of the bag thanks to uh, COVID. And I think that from now on, that's gonna be normal. I was just talking to one of the companies in the enterprise tech space who has a really remarkable office and they often had, or they always had everybody come into the office. Um, they are reorganizing their entire uh, working space to be what they call hotel space. That doesn't mean they're renting out rooms. What it means is people are going to be able to sign up for this desk or that desk for today or tomorrow and come in and use the facilities that they need when they need them and then work from other places at other times. And I think companies are kind of coming on board with this, even though they kind of didn't want to. And this goes to the stories where Tom and I have talked to, for example, companies moving out of Silicon Valley to Texas or companies downsizing their offices. Uh, you know, NetApp just sold their corporate campus. Um, you know, HP is moving from, you know, California to uh, Texas. Uh, you know, a lot of these companies, the reason that they're doing this is because they're able to have employees work from anywhere increasingly. So I'll just leave you with one interesting fact, and this is sort of a counterpoint here. So to look at the graphs in this report, it's kind of overwhelming. Would you like to work remotely at least some of the time for the rest of your career? The answer is 97.6% said yes. Would you recommend remote work to others? 97% said yes. But that same question two years ago was 99% yes. So interestingly, <laughs> people have actually decided that they don't want to work for remotely in the last year. Not that they do. Now, it's only like 2 or 3%, but 2 or 3% changed their mind and decided that they don't want to work remotely in the last few years. I think that says as much about this study as that big headline number that 97% of people want to, remote, want, want to work from re remotely. I think, you know, that's horses for courses. And maybe what we're going to see is different people adopting different things. Now, Tom, do you want to talk a little bit more about some of the other questions and some of the other th things, for example, the benefits of working remotely and the struggles of working remotely that they found in this study? Sure, I'll be happy to, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of important um, information that you can get in here. I mean, think about the number of people who say, well, one of the reasons why I like this is that I don't have to commute and I get to spend more time with my family. Those are huge advantages. 
But I think a lot of people are also realizing that when they don't have to commute and they don't have to, or they get to spend more time with their family, they tend to do other things. And I know this is a challenge for me when I first started working remotely was this idea that, oh, well, I can just go pop the laundry into the washing machine. Well, when you're like me and you have ADHD, popping the laundry into the washing machine means you also have to take it out of the dryer and take it upstairs and fold it and hang it up. And the next thing you know, you missed your last call. So people are having to figure out that work-life balance now isn't just, I need to leave the office at five o'clock. It's, I need to draw bright lines when I'm in the office that I'm not doing non-work things. Um, likewise, you know, think about some of the distractions that you face. Uh, loneliness was high, was a highlight. And I know that that's a huge challenge for us. I have been known in the past to go to a coffee shop, not because I need coffee. I need noise. I need people around me because working from home, I don't get that. Um, staying motivated, way easy to not be motivated when you're not surrounded by four walls. Um, you know, here's another one that I never even thought of that I've just dealt with teammates in different time zones. We have teammates that live in Eastern, Central, and Mountain, and we do business with people in Pacific, along with folks in Sydney and in London. And that's hard to manage because there are, there are times when we get emails at 7.30 at night when we're having dinner with our family because the person that sent the email just finished their work day. And they're like, oh, well, I'll just send this before I'm done. I'm working a little bit late tonight. Likewise, you don't want to get a phone call from me at eight o'clock my time, because if you're in Pacific time, I just woke you up. So, I mean, you, there's a lot of balance that you have to do this. And I'm actually curious if we rerun this same survey next year, knowing that Silicon Valley companies are going to start reducing their compensation packages because they no longer have to pay people to live in the most expensive real estate on the planet. How many more people are going to suddenly decide that maybe remote working isn't all it's cracked up to be? I mean, I, I don't know. I, I I have mixed feelings about this. I mean, obviously, I will. I've always said working remotely is something that you should definitely should do if you can do it. And yes, it's sad that we have a lot of people who will never be able to work remotely. First responders, service personnel, um, law enforcement, um, the kinds of people that we rely on to do everything else around us every day. But there are a lot of people who are in the line of work that we're in who are not suited to work from home because they're just not capable of dealing with the different level that you have to be on in order to make it happen. So take it with a grain of salt. When we get back to something that looks a little bit more normal, just analyze what works best for you. No one says you have to work from home all the time. No one says you have to work in the office all the time. Find the mix that works for you so that you can be the most effective worker and healthiest person that you can be, both physically and mentally. And who knows, maybe if uh, you jump back in your car and you have a little bit of a commute, you can continue to listen to the Gestalt IT Rundown and a lot of our other fine podcasts on your commute. All right, well, that will just about do it for this episode of The Rundown. Thank you very much for tuning in this week. Uh, we're live every Wednesday on uh, our YouTube channel at 12.30 Eastern time. Uh, we're always happy to bring you the latest news. Uh, we collect these stories throughout the week so that we don't miss anything. And we appreciate everyone out there who tunes in and uh, listens to us. Uh, we had a great chat with Michael Keene, friend of the show. And he says, you know, sometimes I listen to you guys just because you give me the perspective on things outside of my wheelhouse. And those are the kinds of reviews that we really love to hear. So Michael, thanks for letting us know that. And we are happy that you tune in and, and are a part of the show. 
If you would like to leave us a comment, uh, you can head over to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash gestalt IT video. Um, you know, leave a comment directly on the video. You can also tweet at us. We're at gestalt IT on Twitter. Um, if you have a story that you suggest for the rundown, that's the easiest way to get a hold of us. We'll be able to see it incorporated into the show. Um, you can also download this uh, episode on our podcast feed, whether you use your podcast application or you use us iTunes. Uh, we have a lot of other great content out there on our website. Um, Stephen, it's going to be a busy week for you. What have you got going on? Well, Tom, it is Cloud Field Day week. And so this week, uh, we uh, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. Pacific time, we are going to be online with a variety of companies in the enterprise tech uh, cloud space. So we're going to talk to uh, some of the cloud service providers, some of the companies that are developing uh, hybrid cloud infrastructure for enterprises, and uh, some of the cloud software companies. So do head over to techfieldday.com, uh, click on Cloud Field Day 10. You can see the agenda, you can see a list of delegates. Uh, you can tune in and watch the presentations live, as I said, from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. Pacific time. Uh, also, uh, we're publishing episodes of the Utilizing AI podcast every Tuesday morning. Uh, we just published one uh, that is a really great discussion. Uh, I can't wait for you guys to tune in for that one. And as I mentioned, we're gonna be publishing one about homomorphic encryption, sort of, uh, here in a, another few weeks. And one more thing, um, you know, I, it was really great to hear from Michael Keane about how he enjoyed this program. Uh, I would love it if people would uh, leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, one of the things that really helps uh, podcasts like ours get an audience is when people review them. Uh, so please, if you've got something nice to say, um, leave us a review on iTunes. And if you don't, well, maybe, I don't know, tune in on Clubhouse and let us know what you really think uh, when we're uh, doing our preparation for these episodes every week. So thanks a lot, Tom. Yeah. Um, you know, it's the, the the joy of this is that we get to interact with the community and <clears throat> bring you news and, and our perspective on it. So we're going to keep doing that. And as long as you want to keep listening, um, you know, make sure you head over to gestaltit.com, check out all the great articles that we write, check out all the great content that we create, you know, not only the rundown, but check some uh, conversations, uh, the on-premise IT roundtable, utilizing AI. We're trying to bring you all of the content that we're physically capable of doing in a day because we know that it makes your day brighter. And honestly, it makes our day a little bit brighter too because we can we can be in your ear teaching you something or, or giving you some interesting perspectives. All right, well, that will just about do it for this episode. Thank you very much for tuning in. Remember that you can always find us at gestaltit.com. And for myself and Stephen Foskett and the rest of our Gestalt IT family, we wanna thank you and have a super sparkly day. Bye-bye.